So Chris Reese said, outside it's like we're in Mordor. In case you don't know what Mordor is, this little set of books called uh, Lord of the Rings. <clears throat> and, and there's this one ring to rule them all, which Frodo, this hairy midget, has to go and throw into Mount Doom to destroy the one ring that rules them all. And they have to go to the land of Mordor to do this. I'm totally butchering the movie. And... <laughs> I actually read the books. Because <laughs> there's more than one. I read The Hobbit first, though. The... It takes you about halfway through that book. This means nothing to you. It takes about halfway through that book to get used to the writing style, and then it's like, all good. It's all good. But anyway, Mordor, it's, because, because of Mount Doom, there's, uh, there's fires, and it just covers the whole land in this, in this smoke-like outside, and all you see around the ring of the edge is this little bit of horizon. That's, it looks just like outside. Just... We are living in Mordor. So, I, I had one announcement, but now I got two because uh, some, do not think you can do this. I will not announce your thing if you accost me after a service, but I was accosted after last service, so I'm going to make this announcement. Uh, we have a lady here who loves Christmas caroling. Okay? I am not a lover of going out and Christmas caroling in front of people's houses because when people do it to my house, I'm like, what do I do? Do I got to turn on the light and listen? I mean, what? It's like, you just, you don't know what to do. You got to sit and go. And then they start the next song and you're like. I don't practice my faces in the mirror, by the way. Uh, but anyway, uh, some people love Caroline, and, and so she wants, and I'm, I don't mean to undersell this, it's, it's kind of cool. Uh, she wants to invite you to go Caroline with her. So she's going to be here on Tuesday and Wednesday, which are, which are our only days off this week, at 3.30 is when she's going to show up. And she hopes about 3.45, 4 o'clock just to walk around the neighborhood here, which is also really nice so they get to know us. So sing on key. Um, and, and sings a Christmas song. She, so she printed out a, a bunch of different songs and stuff like that. And if you would like to, on Tuesday, put on your calendar, uh, 3.30, 3.45, show up here, and she will take you out Christmas caroling, okay? It's like you got, I'm not coming. You should come sing if you enjoy that. All right, uh, second thing is I got, I call it Christmas for Delta Kids because we do this thing every year called Christmas for Kids. Uh, and this year, because of our move and how everything kind of took place, we instead uh, we're going to adopt Delta as our Christmas for Kids program this year. So I call it Christmas for Delta Kids. And what we're doing is they get out of school at the end of this week, and we want to give every single student that goes to that high school a stocking. Inside that stocking, some candy, a movie ticket, and a little note that just says, "Hey, enjoy a movie during you know a Christmas break from Element." And so if you would like to help stuff those stockings, Tuesday at 9.30, you can show up, and Sarah's going to start stuffing the stockings then. If you would like to donate to that, because movie tickets are about 10 bucks, uh, there's, a, there's a red box by the Welcome Center. You can put some in there. You can go online to our online giving page and put money in the Christmas for Kids thing there. And again, it's going to go all towards them to you know, give them. It's, it's a nice way to show up in a neighborhood and say, hey, hopefully you like us. Have a movie ticket. And then they'll go see Star Wars. Star Wars is a story. (laughs) 
Welcome to Element. If you are new, there are Bibles in the back or into the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. Uh, there are sermon notes in all the communion tables throughout the room, and I don't have one this week. Uh, oh, you're going to hate this, Paul. We have subs. They look like this. On the inside, you'll get some notes that go a little bit deeper into what we're talking about, as well as some questions to go a little bit deeper into what we are talking about. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It is called Uversion. Click on More, and then Events in Uversion will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You'll get sermon notes, verses, announcements, uh, all that goes along with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. And it says, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us in a, in a very practical way what it means to live out the gospel in the midst of the world in which we live. Uh, we ask that you would put your hand on all the firefighters and all the people working down south that you would uh, bring unexpected rains to us, that you would just do an, an amazing work in the midst of this. And even though we don't see the good that you bring in the midst of it, we know that you are good and you will bring good. And so teach us to live as a people who bring good in all that we do because you are first good to us. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so we are doing this short Christmas series to get our minds around really the, the holiday season and the more bizarre family that shows up that we have to deal with during that. They'll fix that, don't worry. Uh, we named the series after that great Christmas classic starring the Terminator called Jingle All the Way, right? And who, who doesn't love a good Schwarzenegger movie? Now, seriously, we named it Jingle All the Way because most of the time when things get weird and miserable with our families and, and people that come around, uh, we feel like we have to suck it up and be nice and happy, so we have to jingle all the way and go with it. Uh, this series is what we call topical, which means that we are going to cover a topic rather than go verse by verse through a section of scripture, because when I go expository, I can't get anything into four weeks. So this is the only way I can get something in, into four weeks. Uh, Christmas can be hard simply because of the time of the year the nature where it falls. It's at the end of the year. It brings, I think, out the best and the worst in people. And we all have hard people in our families and how are we going to deal with them? Most importantly on the backside, though, is how do we see ourselves in the family of God itself? Because that's the aim that we want to know. How does God see us? How do we live in his family, live out the gospel so the world knows who he is? So that's what we're going to deal with for the next few weeks. It's going to be, hopefully, going to be very practical. Uh, Maybe you are someone who tries to get everyone to think that you have the perfect family. Uh, you, You try not to let anybody see the issues and stuff that you have. Maybe you think if I can get people to look at it as I want to be in my head, they could feature me on postcards or or Bible studies or magazines or TV talk shows. But that's a lie because anybody who has the perfect family, it's a lie because every family has hard people. And a lot of times we are the hard people in our families. And if you don't think you do, well, we call that denial. And that's not a river in Egypt. We call it denial. Well, I read some of your guys' Facebook posts and things like that, and sometimes people try to convince everybody else that their life is so put together. It, it's not. It's not. My wife even says to me, when I talk about her up here, she goes, you need to stop talking about how our marriage is so great. And I'm like, really? Is it bad? She goes, oh, no, no, no. She goes, it's, it's not bad. She goes, but it gives people this wrong idea that, like, we have it all together. We don't have it all together. So I'm just throwing it out there for her. We don't have it all together. But she is pretty awesome. Okay, so. <laughs> she, every time she's like, stop saying nice things about us. And I'm like, what do you want me to say? 
my marriage stinks. You know, no, no, I love her. I love anyway. Anyway, so we need to get our eyes off ourselves and onto Jesus and understand that God wants to restore us to the understanding of what the gospel is meant to be in our lives, what our family is meant to be. And so hopefully we'll begin to learn how to function in this broken world in which we live as God's children. We'll go out and live out what God has called us to, and especially the idea of what family was originally meant to be. So in this series, we're looking at four different family types or types of people that you may encounter during the holidays. Now God wants us to begin to deal with them. So far, we looked at stressed out people or families because Christmas is one of the most stressful times during the year. Of the 10 most stressful triggers, Christmas will hit eight of those. Uh, One of those being it is the most expensive holiday of the year, which means if you feel anxiety at other times during the year about money issues, Christmas is going to expound that. And so if you do have a little anxiety, well, then you're normal. But there are ways to deal with that, understanding the gospel, which we talked about in week one. Week two, we talked about disappointed family or situations or or people, because we all have people in our family, a lot of times it's us who feel disappointment with God or with our friends or with uh, different things and situations that come up. So we talked about how to deal with that. Uh, disappointment is really the first place that a lot of the birth narratives start in the scriptures. And disappointed people say things like, I wish my life hadn't turned out this way. Or why is God so mean to me? Or why does everyone have it better than me? And so we looked at disappointment in us and others and how the answer is having hope in the person of Jesus. Now this week we're going to talk about hazardous people or hazardous family members. And you may think you don't have any of those in your family. uh, So you don't have to deal with that. But let me give you some synonyms for the word hazardous. Here we go. Uh, First one is risky. Do you have anybody in your family that's a bit risky? Either you feel like you're in danger around them or they encourage you to do some things you probably shouldn't do and so get you in trouble. Risky. Uh, dangerous is another one. Do you have in your fa- anybody in your family that's dangerous? Not like, you know, Batman dangerous or something like that, but, but are you not sure you're so secure around them? Another word is unsafe. Are there people that come around you at Christmas time who destroy you? Not like growing up with your brother who beat you up all the time. Or I don't know where that came from. Um, anyway, uh, uh, but, but maybe emotionally, maybe emotionally they beat you up. They say things that tear you down. They belittle you. They, they destroy who God is calling you to be with their words. Another word is lethal. Do you have anyone in your family or your, or your friendship circle that kills your life and your spirit when you're around them? And you have to act like nothing is wrong because if you act like something is wrong, well, then you're the jerk and there's something wrong with you. Another word for it is insecure. Is there anybody in your family or life that is so insecure that they suck the life out of you? Or maybe that's you, and you suck the life out of those around you. Some people are so insecure in who they are, they are real against Jesus or faith or the church or family altogether because they have nothing that grounds them in their own life. Those are all synonyms for the word hazardous. So don't raise your hands, but do you have any of those? In the Christmas story, there are hazardous people. We all think our home and our family and the people we're closest to should always be a place that we are safe and nobody ever hurts us. But if you're married, j- just think of your relationship with your spouse. Is there anybody who knows you better than they do, who knows exactly what buttons to push to get you all riled up? 
Of course not, because they know you really well. The ones closest to us, the ones we open up to the most, are the ones in the end who can actually hurt us most deeply. The ones who are supposed to care for us and keep us safe, quote-unquote, are the ones who seem to be able to hurt us the most. But actually, on the backside, that's a good thing, because it means that we are becoming vulnerable to somebody. Whoever you feel the most vulnerable to could be the person in the end that hurts you the most. But we must be vulnerable in order to love and live out how God calls us to love and live. Now, and as bad as maybe hazardous people can be in your family, nothing is going to be as bad as how Jesus' family had it in the beginning with this guy named Herod. Uh, Herod goes by this name called Herod the Great. If you have a family member who comes around and wants you to name them whatever the Great, well, they probably have some issues. I have never asked my family to call me Aaron the Great. If I do, they'd they'd probably just laugh. Anyway, uh, Herod is the guy who ruled over a large section of Israel. And as a ruler, he should have been looking out how to take care of the people underneath him to help keep them safe. But instead, Herod is a madman who is paranoid and prone to acts of genocide. At the time of the Christmas story, Rome rules the known world. And I've told you about Herod before, and I'm going to briefly kind of sum up the guy that he was and tell you about him again. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. Now, Rome rules the known world. A guy named Caesar at this point rules Rome. And as Caesar, you have a whole lot of land. And so you have to delegate people to put in charge of certain areas. So Caesar puts this guy named Herod in charge of the nation of Israel. He puts him in charge when Herod is a young warrior. And so Herod begins his rule in Israel by besieging Jerusalem in 37 BC. And he massacres everyone he could find that opposed Rome. When you finally get, you know, about 37 years later, you get to the birth narratives and the Christmas story, Matthew 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, for Herod, those words are a problem because Herod is king of the Jews. And Herod gets his power from Caesar. Herod is always trying to make Caesar happy. So everywhere in his kingdom, he builds all these altars to Caesar. Herod is in the land of the Jews who worship a God who said, do not make any idols. And yet Herod is the guy who puts idols everywhere. The wise men come from the east and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star star when it rose and we have come to worship him. That is also a problem for Herod because he wants people to worship Caesar so he gets to stay king and keep his place and position of power. Herod had been given the title King of the Jews by Rome. He is technically a Jew. He's an Edomite. Uh, But he spoke Greek. Politically, he would always side with Rome. And as I said, he was paranoid. Thought people were always out to to get him. Uh, From history, it's written he had 10 or 11 wives and he had 43 kids. At one point, he becomes suspicious of one of his wives and tells his assistant, if I die on this trip, kill her. And so his assistant tells her this, you know, well, you better not have any plans or kill him on this trip because if he dies, you're going to die too. So he gets back and she's a little cold and distant, as, as you, as you might, might be, so he kills her anyway. That's what Herod does. He had her mother executed, her two sons by her executed. When his barber tried to stick up for the two kids and say, they didn't have anything to do with this, don't, I don't know what you're doing. He had his barber killed. He becomes suspicious of another one of his kids, so he drowns him in the family pool, which is actually more like a lake. You had to take a boat to get to the center of it. At one point, he has a dispute with the, with the governing Jewish authorities, so he kills them all. 
You can see why, when Jesus walked the earth, that the Jews were afraid of Rome. He was, the, he was the guy who ended up building the temple in Jerusalem for the Jews, but he only does it because his relationship with the Jews was so bad that Rome was starting to get a little irritated with him, so he tries to make nice and build this temple. But even as he's building this temple, he places on top of this temple a golden eagle, which is a symbol of Rome, because he's trying to stick it in their eyes and say, well, I'll build it, but ah. And so what happens is a group of Jews get together, they sneak in, and they take it down because it's very offensive to them, this pagan symbol on top of their temple. So Herod goes and he rounds up all the usual suspects, has them all executed, those he thought who were the ringleaders of it, he has burned alive. And a lot of people think Herod did this simply so that he could get these people and kill them because he didn't have any other charges against them. Herod lived in cities like Jerusalem where there were no farmlands, in cities only the rich could afford to live. And so if religious leaders disagreed with him, he would kill them and put others in. So you had a lot of religious leaders and a lot of political people in Jerusalem who were all sycophants to Herod. So you have this tight group of elites, and they live in Jerusalem, and they follow Herod. 80 to 90% of the population are providing the goods in the country to be eaten by the elites. You and I would probably be peasant farmers. Herod has his men. They come out to take our food to feed those elites. He literally taxes the poor in Israel into homelessness. When he is on his deathbed, he's in horrible pain. He dies a horrible death. He did a couple things. Number one, he rounded up all the Jewish leaders, and he said, when I die, I want you to kill them so there's weeping at my death. The second thing that he does is he tries to commit suicide five days before he dies, and a guard stops him. But the place in which he lived was so big, there's some confusion. And the son that was supposed to succeed him upon his death, in our vernacular we call it like the crown prince or or something like that, goes and he assumes power because he thinks his dad is dead. And so Herod goes, oh, no, 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 I'm not dead yet, and then has this kid killed. That's Herod. Josephus, who is the Roman Jewish historian, said, Herod never stopped avenging and punishing every day those who chose to be of the party of his enemies. So Jesus is born during the time of King Herod. What does Herod do when he hears a king of the Jews is born? He asks politely, oh, really? Well, where is he? I want to come worship him too. And the wise men are like, there's something off here. So the wise men don't give them the correct information because they're, they're trying to keep Jesus safe. Matthew 2.16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and on all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he ascertained from the wise men. Whoever is the most unsafe person you've ever had in your life, I don't think they probably hold a candle to Herod. He kills every infant two years old and under to make sure there's no rival king. Imagine living in that time. This is why the angel shows up to Joseph in Matthew 2.13 and says, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. In all of Mary and Joseph's life, not only now do they have this scandal of Mary's pregnancy to deal with and the stress of that, they may still not be married yet. They now have to raise God's son. Like, that's no pressure at all, right? I've got to raise God's kid? Holy cow. And not only do they have to deal with the disappointment of leaving their home and then going to Bethlehem for the census, but now they have to run for their lives because Herod is hazardous to their health. Herod is like a living nuclear power meltdown. The guy is just crazy. So they've got to leave their country and their culture and flee to Egypt, which is a place that the Israelites equate to slavery. And it's really not that much more hospitable in Jesus' day than it was when Israel were there as slaves. they got to go to a place where no one wants them around in order to protect this baby boy. 
Imagine asking a person of color today to travel back to the Deep South in the 1800s. How do you think they'd enjoy that? Not much at all, because it's hazardous. There are still places around the globe today that different skin tones will get you killed if you are there. And believe it or not, some of those are still in the United States. Immigration back then was just as volatile as it is today. And I know that we talked about stress in week one, but hazardous people are also very, very stressful. Richard Lazarus said, Stress is a condition or a feeling experienced when a person perceives that demands exceed the personal and social resources the individual is able to mobilize. That sounds a lot like Mary and Joseph. Uh, The major stress scale that we use today was developed by a couple of people named Holmes and Rahi about 50 years ago. And they said if you get over 300 points on this scale, you are 80% more likely to have major health problems in the near future. So what he did is David Slagle came and he calculated just based on the text how much stress Mary and Joseph were under. One other point total? 450. 450. Marriage, loss of a job, pregnancy, change of financial situation, in-law trouble, moving, gaining a new family member. Someone trying to kill you isn't even on the scale, right? Uh, One is uh, making a change in living conditions, and they had to do that lots of times. Another one is outstanding achievement. I think giving birth to God's son qualifies. All right, for that one right there. Uh, another one is major holiday. You're kind of inventing Christmas, so that, that right there is a big deal. Everything they did, even not running for their lives, was hazardous because there were people in their life that were hazardous. Now, you may think, I don't have anybody like Herod trying to hunt me down and kill me. But if you take it you know, to a smaller scale, we all have hazardous people in our lives. So how do we deal with them? Well, the easiest thing that people do in our culture, and I don't think it's necessarily the right thing, but what we do is we drop a relationship. That's hard, that we don't like. We stop responding to phone calls, emails, text, uh, no Facebook comments, you don't tag them anymore, and eventually the relationship just kind of goes away. You don't have to do anything except play like conveniently dumb. And we think that makes us safe by avoiding hazardous people. But let me ask you, even on a larger scale than that, just with people, how about your life? Where in your life do you look at things and say, I'm really just going to play it safe here. I'm not going to step out into anything that might actually be scary. And we all do this at some point in places in our lives. Maybe you're playing it safe in your career path. Maybe it's like, I'm just going to do this. This is easy. I'll stay here, but not really step out into that. Maybe it's your faith. Maybe God's spirit is nudging you. And calling you to do certain things, but you really don't want to because if you step out in those places, it may be a little bit scary. It may be a little bit hazardous. Maybe you're playing it safe financially. Maybe God's calling you to give to his kingdom. You're like, I don't really want to do that. Where are you playing it safe? When I first became a Christian, there was a saying that people used to use all the time. And they said, the safest place to be is the center of God's will. Made everybody feel really good. But it's so not true. There's a theological word for that. It's called hooey. Okay? If you look at the Bible, the prophets, right? God's prophets were beaten and thrown in jail. Even when that didn't happen, God's always asking them to do some really crazy stuff. In Ezekiel 3.1, God has Ezekiel eat this scroll. In Revelation 10.1, John does the same thing. Isaiah, in Isaiah 20, God has Isaiah go out and preach naked and out of control to show what's going to befall Egypt and Assyria. That's not safe, and that is not happening here. Okay? The book of Hebrews says all of these heroes of the faith, it says some of them were tortures and some of them faced jeers and flogging, chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. It's like that old saying, oh, your husband was shot and killed. Other than that, Miss Lincoln, how was the play? Right? 
We, we think about these things. Oh, I really want to give my life. I really just want to serve him fully. And yet, when we start to do that, things don't always go so easy because God is concerned about our holiness and not our happiness. Our lives are never safe. But we look at people and say, well, those hazardous people just make it worse. Where then, take another step, is where are you then trying to play it safe relationally? Like, I know people who would bungee jump and cliff dive and jump out of an airplane. They're fearless of so many things. But maybe if there's a girl they liked, they'd be like, oh, I can't ask them out on a date. They, they wouldn't do that. Or maybe they had a friend who was being a jerk, and they wouldn't confront them. They'd just kind of let it go. Uh, if they were dating somebody, they wouldn't tell their boyfriend or girlfriend no. They th- people think that safe is letting anyone do whatever they want, and then they will like you. You play it safe. They think it's the easiest way to navigate hazardous people. But all it does is allow the hazardous people to keep being hazardous. Living in fear is not a way to deal with relationships. And maybe you're just afraid to open up at all and be honest about where you are or where you're aching or where you're joyful. Because if you do open up, then like I said before, you become vulnerable and somebody could hurt you. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this letter to defend himself in part because some hazardous people were attacking him. And he says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-five to 29, he's like, I've been shipwrecked and beaten and thrown in jail. I've been in danger from rivers and in danger from bandits, in danger in the country, in danger at sea. Uh, this is like the hardship list we talked about last week. The word that keeps getting repeated here is danger, danger, Will Robinson, danger, danger. And then he says in verse 28, and apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. And I think that's a really funny line because essentially what he says is, do you know what? I've been in prison and I've been tortured and I have been people throwing rocks at me trying to kill me. I keep wanting to say stone, but people don't know what that means anymore because they always think they're a bad thing. Anyway, you know, and, and I've been in danger in all these places, but worse than all of that is being your pastor. That's funny, right? It's, it's funny. This is the guy who wrote most of the New Testament. But what you see is that Paul didn't run away from it. Paul stepped directly into it. Because I think there's a couple things we have to realize. Number one is this. Safety is an illusion that we build to protect ourselves from people. We think that rather than being honest, we can avoid others. But the scriptures tell us honesty is one of the best things we can do to set boundaries in hazardous relationships. That we can talk about what's actually going on and say things like we're meant to. And the second thing is safety is an illusion that we build to protect ourselves sometimes even from God himself. Because we have created this myth that God wants us safe. God never, never promises complete safety. That's not God's option for us. Growth and holiness are God's options for us. When we try to protect ourselves from others or God, we do much to curtail how God wants to grow in our lives. So what I think we need to do, I'll make this very practical for you, is first off, act on God's most frequent promise to us. What is God's most frequent promise in the Bible? I will be with you. I will be with you. Where you go and what you do, and it may be hard, but I will be with you. Matthew 16, 25, Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That is one of the most profound things in the Bible. In all of our efforts in our lives to be safe and comfortable, we actually make ourselves more and more and more miserable. We spend so much time and headspace worrying about hazardous people that we give them more power than they actually have. When we understand our security, not our safety, is found in Christ, it frees us up. 
Think on this. Jesus conquered death. He rose from the grave, which means even if we are killed, we're just going to be raised a new life like he was. Nothing can stop you. So what does that mean? We get to live in hope and reconciliation because we don't have to be afraid of anything. An interesting study came out a couple of years ago that showed around the world, whenever Christians are killed for their faith, you know what happens? Conversions go up. Conversions go up. Because people want the kind of freedom that the resurrection brings us. The second thing is we must want more out of life in our relationships. We must want what the gospel says that we as a people are to step into. We must want what God calls us to in relationships. We must want honesty and truth and discipleship and speaking the gospel to one another. We must want what Jesus said relationships are meant to be. 2 Corinthians 5.18-20, Paul says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So when Paul says some of these hard words to them, he's trying to bring about reconciliation. Paul goes on, That is, in Christ God was reconciled in the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So what is God's mission in the world? To reconcile the world to himself, to seek and to save the lost. And then what does God do? When he rescues us, he places us on that same mission. So we get to live out the mission of God. Dealing with hazardous people is part of what will bring reconciliation in the world. Growing to understand the gospel in its entirety so all of our relationships change. When we have hard conversations, our side of the conversation should always center upon the gospel. Some of the questions I think we must ask ourselves, especially in the midst of Christmas and how we see the gospel and how we live out our lives in front of others, how does the message that we portray as God's ambassadors show how we trust God in the world? If people looked at you and said, I'm going to see how someone trusts God based upon that person's life, what does it look like? What does it look like? How do you live out the gospel in your life? How is God using you to be his messenger even when you cannot use your words? Sometimes you will hear preachers try and scare people into being a Christian. They say, if you died tonight, do you know where you're going? I think that is a terrible and horrible question because I think Jesus would ask a different question. What if you don't die tonight? How will you live tomorrow? I think that's the question. And so maybe that means for you and me taking some emotional risk to be honest with hazardous people. Open up and get honest with a friend or a spouse. Maybe it's to say to your spouse, if you're having a hard time, let's fix this marriage. And you start to take the lumps as you grow and you're willing to change. What I think it really means in the end is we need to be a people who stop focusing on ourselves so much, who stop hurting one another and start healing one another as God has first healed us. And like we always say, it comes back to understanding the gospel. That our great God has healed us, so we bring about healing. And forgiveness takes one person. I know reconciliation takes two. But we are to be the ministers of reconciliation in this world. It does not mean that everybody is going to want to be reconciled. But we must be a people as God's ambassadors to this world to live out that reconciliation. I mean, there is, there's a place in time where Jesus even, even stood uh, before one of, well, one of Herod's sins, but he stood before him and talked to him, you know. And what, it's, it's interesting that God put Jesus in these same situations with hazardous people, and Jesus never shied from the truth. And what happened? He died. So what can happen to you? You might die. But whose hands are you in in the end? 
We are in His. And it's not that we are technically safe, but we are secure because our God is good. And as ministers of people who understand the gospel, we go and live out in this world the great goodness that God has first displayed to us. And that goodness doesn't promise safety. It promises our security in His hands. And so we live out His calling to those around us, bringing hope and reconciliation. That's what we need to be as a people. This is why we remember communion every single week. What are we remembering? Christ's death. You break that cracker like his body was broken. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. Reminds of his blood that was shed for you and me. It's also a reminder that we, as his people, sometimes our blood may actually be shed. But it's also a reminder that he rose from the grave. And that we are a people who will live in and taste that great and good resurrection that he brings as well. And so in the end, we don't have anything to fear. Because our God holds our spirits in his hands. And we can trust him to live out the great call he has placed within us. So what are the places in your life today that you have to begin to let go of the hurt and the pain and the anger to begin to be that ambassador of reconciliation? The band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to invite you to take communion. There'll be some deacons in the back. And if you guys need prayer, if you have a hard person or situation in your life today and you want someone to pray with you about that, you want someone to begin to talk with you through that, and maybe you just don't even know the words to say, but, but you really do want to begin to work through it. Well, then they'd love to talk to you, and they would love to pray with you in the end, because our God is good, and he wants us to be about reconciliation. There's offering boxes on the side wall in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us giving as part of our worship. We don't pass the plate. It's a response to what he has done, but we give because our God is that gracious to us. Uh, there's some food out, outside in the land of Mordor. Uh, you can grab something to eat, uh, meet some other people, and, and maybe this week develop some new friendships. Uh, may, maybe you develop a way where you can have that accountability with somebody else or maybe, maybe have somebody speak some truth and words into your life so they can encourage you to go out into places where you need to offer and extend reconciliation. But we need one another in our lives to remember to go and live out the grace and the goodness of the gospel. So let's be a people who begin to do that, who connect with one another in a way that we encourage each other to live out the great hope that we as first received because our God is good. Our God is good. And let's live as his ambassadors in this world. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us that that you are good and that we would trust your goodness. Father, so often when people around us are difficult and hazardous, our first reaction is to write them off. And I ask that you would let us know when that space is needed because sometimes it is. But I also ask that you would convict us and show us the places where to step back in and to bring your truth. That we wouldn't shy away from the hope that you provide. And that we would extend and show that hope to each other. That we are not a people who can save ourselves. That only you can save us. And that you are the one alone who rescues us. So teach us to lift our heart and our lives and our hands to who you are. That we would fully surrender all that we are and begin to live this life under your great banner and care for us. 
that we would be a people who honor you by what we say. And Father, for those who don't even necessarily know us, but just see our lives, maybe at work or maybe in our neighborhoods, they would see who you are because of how we live, that your message would be on display by what we say and do. Father, we ask in all things, you would be glorified by our lives. And we thank you for saving us, for rescuing us, and for being our hope and our life in all things. Teach us to live out that goodness. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.